Thank you, Pastor. Indeed, what a blessing, what a privilege it is to be with you today. Um, as Pastor had mentioned, I work with the Michigan Association of Christian Schools. And what that means is I try to spend, uh, usually typically any Wednesday, I will be in Lansing just monitoring legislation, uh, talking to our elected officials, trying to preserve religious liberty as long as we can. We feel that it's a gift, a precious gift, that if we don't preserve it, if we don't fight for it, it's a gift that we could very easily uh, forfeit through ignorance and through apathy. This morning in our Sunday school lesson, if you would please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 14, I'll give a little bit more formal introduction in the afternoon service, but in 1 Samuel chapter 14, one of the burdens that I have is as I take a look at our national history, as I take a look at the things that we've been entrusted with, and I listen to the secularists talk about this, I find that the seculars are very shallow in their thinking, superficial. Uh, they know a few things that somebody has told them, and to take the effort to actually dig deep and discover the meaning of our men, monuments, moments, and manuscripts of American history, they would probably come to a different conclusion. But they're very uh, superficial in the things that they discuss about our American history. So this morning in our Sunday school lesson, I'd like us to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 14 and verse 6 for our text. Jonathan said to the young man that bears armor, Come, let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time together this morning. Lord, we come to you and we are a needy people. We need to hear from you today. We need your presence. We need your Holy Spirit to work in our lives. Lord, I would just ask that you would help us now. I pray that in everything that we say and do, might you get all the honor and all the glory. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Our story is, the title of the Sunday School lesson is, I Believe God Will Help Us. And I sure hope somebody helps me with, uh, hold it up. There you go. Yeah, we're going to have revival here. Amen. You know, Speaking in tongues is not speaking in a foreign language. It's letting the Holy Spirit control the one tongue you have. And so I'll hold up my hands and we will have revival with the PowerPoint. Amen. But our, our lesson is, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Do you know that there are only two nations in the history of the world that have claimed that verse for themselves? That would be Old Testament Israel and the United States of America. Isaiah tells us, remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is none else. I'm God, there is none like me. The psalmist says, I remember the days of old. 
I meditate on all thy works. I muse on the work of thy hands. Let me ask you something. How many of you, when you were in high school, history was your least favorite subject? We can be honest, we're in church. Least favorite subject, okay? How many of you that raised your hand had a coach for a history teacher? All right. Town I went to, every single year, it seemed like they wanted a football team that would, number one, win the homecoming game. We have the hometown I went to, we have an incredible record of years of losing the homecoming game. It was like a tradition. And then the second thing, if they did have a decent team, they wanted to get out of districts and into regions, get out of the conference, or they wanted a basketball team that could make it to the next level. And so they would hire this incredible coach, allegedly, and then as an afterthought, they would think, oh, we've got to put him in a classroom someplace. Well, you can't put the coach in a chemistry classroom. You can't put the coach in a, in a trigonometry classroom. You've got to know something to teach those classes. So they would put the coach in the history classroom, and it was brutal. Um, they would put the coach in the history classroom, and he would more or less just read the text to us, or we would read the text back to him. And then, mercifully, usually on Monday morning, somebody would say to him, Coach, what happened Friday night? And all of a sudden, we got him on a subject he knew something about. The maps went up. He's drawing X's and O's all over the blackboard. And 50 minutes later, mercifully, we were delivered from another one of his history lessons. Well, I was giving this Sunday school lesson at a church, and a lady stopped me afterwards, and she said, You forgot to ask the follow-up question. How many of you since high school have learned to have an appreciation for history and the history that we have, of course. So I muse on the work of thy hands. I daydream about what the Lord has given to us. Let's take a look at the condition of Israel when Jonathan said, I believe God's going to help us. The first thing that we see is their leaders were corrupt. First Samuel chapter 2, if you would. This is the nation of Israel at one of its lower ebbs in history. First Samuel chapter 2, verse 22. Now Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did unto all Israel, how that they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he said unto them, Why do ye such things? For I hear of your evil dealings by all this people. Nay, my sons, it is no good report that I hear. Ye make the Lord's people to transgress. Their spiritual leaders, instead of bringing them in a closer walk with the Lord, were actually driving them away from spiritual things, driving them away from a walk with the Lord. People would go to the tabernacle and they would end up farther away from the Lord than if they would have stayed home that day. So their leaders were corrupt. Their enemies were humiliating them. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, Israel goes off to battle. In their first battle, their encounter with the Philistines, they lose 4,000 people. And they think, boy, we need to do something about this. So instead of getting right with the Lord proclaiming a day of fasting and prayer, uh, doing what they should do to get their hearts back right with the Lord, they think, you know what? Let's take a shortcut. You know, what does the Lord love and what would he protect? Well, one of the things that the Lord gave the children of Israel was the Ark of the Covenant. It was a sacred piece of furniture. It was a representation of the Lord's presence among Israel. And so they said, even though our hearts aren't right with the Lord, let's take a shortcut. Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle with us. And so they go into battle, and this time 20,000 people are killed. Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, are killed in battle. Eli's daughter-in-law is about to give birth, and if she gives birth, her dying request is, 
name that spot Ichabod because the glory has departed. And so we come to 1 Samuel chapter 5. Israel is no longer in possession of the most sacred piece of furniture the Lord has given them, the Ark of the Covenant. And we read very sobering words in 1 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 1. It says, And the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer unto Ashdod. Just so we don't forget the severity, the gravity, the weight of what is being said, the sacred historian records in verse 2, when the Philistines took the Ark of God. They brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. These pagan Philistines go off into battle. They rout Israel. One of the trophies of war, they get the Ark of the Covenant, and they think it's just a treasure among other treasures. Our God has defeated their God. And it's big for them because just before the battle, they said, realize this is Israel whose God brought the plague upon the Egyptians. And they've now defeated that God. And so they bring the Ark of the Covenant in and they set it next to Dagon in their temple in Ashdod. Now Dagon was the Philistine god of the vegetation or the vegetarians. How many of you have ever looked up the word vegetarian in the dictionary? It comes from an old Indian word. It means lousy hunter. So they set the Ark of the Covenant next to Dagon. And look what happens. Verse 3. When they of Ashdod arose early in the morrow, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the Ark of the Lord, and they took Dagon and they set him up again. The Philistines have the Ark of God. It's set beside Dagon. The next morning they come in and Dagon has fallen on his face to the ground. Probably could have been one of the first candidates for help, I've fallen and I can't get up. So what did they do? They take him, Dagon's fallen on his face, they take Dagon, set him back up. You know, was there a seismic earthquake? Was there something we weren't aware of? Obviously, we can't give the, the correct assumption that the Ark of, of the Covenant, the God of the Ark of the Covenant, is greater than the God of Dagon. And so they set Dagon back up on his pedestal. Let's keep this to ourselves. We're not going to talk about this outside of the temple. So the Lord has another plan. So in verse 4, when they arose early in the morrow morning, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground, before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold only the stump of Dagon was left to him so this time Dagon falls with such force on his face that his head is chopped off his hands are chopped off and they roll to the threshold the doorway of this pagan temple so what are they going to do well rather than come up with an explanation that the God of the Israelites is still greater than the God of the Philistines, they said, you know what? Dagon's head and hands fell right here upon the threshold. So look what they come up with in verse 5. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any that come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod unto this day. They come to the threshold and they say, you know what? Let's memorialize this. Let's make this threshold a sacred place so that every time we come in, we step over the threshold because obviously it's sacred because Dagon's head and hands were there. Let's not explain how in the world the head and hands got there, but let's make this threshold a sacred place and we'll step over it every time we come into the temple. And one of the things that's amazing, the way that the Philistines continued to humiliate the Israelites, is when you come to the book of Zephaniah, one of the indictments against the children of Israel in the book of Zephaniah, Zephaniah says, among other things, ye make the Lord's your children 
to leap upon the threshold. You have taught your children through intermarrying with the Philistines that whenever Hebrew children walk into a room, they step over the threshold. That's not found in the law. That's not found anywhere. You have adopted the the pagan Philistine customs. You walk and you act like the Philistines. Their enemies were humiliating them. And lastly, their people were compromised. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Verse 4. Then the elders of Israel, elder is bearded one, the ones who have the wisdom of years upon their shoulders. Now, wisdom doesn't always come with age. Sometimes age just comes by itself. Then the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel and to Ramah, and they said, Behold, thou art old. Isn't that an indictment today? You're old. You just don't get it. Samuel, you probably still have dial-up. You don't have Wi-Fi. You probably still have a flip phone. Samuel, you probably have your fax number on your business card. You're just not with it. You know, the longer that I go, the older that I get, the more some things just kind of sail by me and don't hit the radar screen. I was um, at home. Our youngest daughter was still living at home. And I get in a lot of different schools every single week, every single month. And I would hear some terms that I had no idea what they meant. And so we're sitting at dinner. My youngest daughter is a senior in high school. And I said, Hannah, I've got a question for you. I said, I've heard a, a term. I don't know what it, what it is, but can you help me out? I said, what is an box?" And she just looked at me with all the disappointment that somebody I had given life to could. And she said, Dad, it's an iPad or an Xbox, and please don't ever say that in public. No problem. But as we get older, stuff sails by us. I was listening to the governor of Colorado was making a statement, and he said, looking at mounting health care costs, he said, we have a generation of old people who have an obligation to die so as to not be a burden upon the resources of their children and society. You know what happens to a society when they minimalize life on the margins, when they don't care about the care and, and welfare of old people? We're supposed to rise up before the hoary head. We're supposed to reverence those who are older than us. What about a society that marginalizes life on the margins with the unborn, the innocent? How does that society answer to the Lord? So their leaders were compromised. And they come unto Samuel and they say, Behold, thou art old, thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the other nations. Samuel, we're looking around and we've got the Lord. Everybody else has a king. The king has a crown. The king has royal vestitures. The king has a throne. we got the Lord. And really, we want a king. You know, we've had enough of this Yahweh stuff. We've had enough of the story of the man in the wilderness. And we've had enough of all of the things that, that are part of our history and our culture and our heritage. We want a king. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 8, this is one of the times in the Bible where God is up for an election. And God is going to lose the election. Two people are on the ballot. You've got the Lord Jehovah. You've got a human king. Cast your ballot. And Israel cast their ballot for the king and not the Lord. And Samuel's discouraged. 
and his heart is broken. And the Lord comes to Samuel and he says, Samuel, don't worry about it. They have not rejected you. They've rejected me. And in the Lord's concession speech, in losing the election, he gives an amazing epiphany to the people. He said, let me tell you what your king is going to do. And here's your homework for this afternoon. I taught high school social studies for five years. I always enjoyed giving homework. Here's your homework. I want you to go to 1 Samuel chapter 5, beginning in verse 8, and I want you to read the rest of the chapter, or 1 Samuel chapter 8, excuse me, beginning in verse 8. Read the rest of the chapter, and I want you to see how many times the Lord says, when you get your king, he will take, and he will take, and he will take, and he will take. God gives us good gifts. They are new every morning. Thy mercies are new every morning. God gives to us everything that pertains unto life and godliness. Your king will take. This same daughter went off to Bob Jones, came back from Bob Jones. She was going to live at, She lived at home for a year before she got married. And the arrangement was, you know, just work. All you got to do is put $20 in the gas tank. It's free to stay at home. We want you here saving money and everything. And she got an amazing job in an office. And she was making $15 an hour in this office. And I'll never forget that first Friday night. She went to work on Monday for the whole week. She's thinking, $15 an hour times 40 hours is $600. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be a beautiful thing. Friday night, she got her first paycheck. I wish all of you could have been around the dinner table with us. It was like a hallmark moment. It was incredible. She said, look at this. Look at all of my money they took. She said, who is FICA? And she was just hot. Everything's listed on there as far as what was taken. (laughs) I comforted her with the same words that my dad comforted me with one time when I was whimpering about life. And he said, son, it only gets better. And he will take, and he will take, and he will take. And we turn our lives over to the Lord, and he gives. So we come to all of this, and we say, why was Jonathan so optimistic? Why in 1 Samuel chapter 14 would Jonathan say, I believe the Lord's going to help us? Where does that come from? Well, when you study Hebrew school, Schechter says the school was the equivalent of Mount Sinai, says Schechter in his studies in Judaism. The first day of school was undertaken with a special ceremony. The boy was awakened before dawn, bathed and dressed in a gown with fringes. The father escorted the boy to school where he was placed at a reading desk. This young Hebrew child gets up, wants to go out and play, and folks say, no, you're not going out to play today. You're going to take a bath. You've got good clothes you're going to put on today. Dad's going to take you into school. You're going to school today. So, A passage, he's placed at the reading desk, a passage from the Law of Moses was spread out before him and read aloud. Now imagine, this Hebrew child is going to school and this is the very first thing he hears his teacher say. And the Lord God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. This is immersion education in Hebrew culture, Hebrew language, Hebrew history, Hebrew tradition, that child is going to learn what it means to be a unique and special person separated from the secular world that is out there. So the child was shown a slate of the Hebrew alphabet in various combinations. More scripture was read. The new student repeated it before the teacher. Honey was put on the slate and the child ate it off. Then the child was given sweet cakes to eat with passages from the law written on them. Everything about their uniqueness in this world is presented to them. 
Now think about this. Israel's history is full of God's providential care for the children of Israel. Think about the plagues of Egypt. You've got Jehovah in a titanic struggle for the hearts and minds of his own people, but then also he wants to give a little uh, flannel graph lesson to the Egyptians, and so he's going to bring the plagues on the Egyptians. What are some of the plagues that were brought on the Egyptians? Locusts. It destroyed everything. Destroyed the crops. Destroyed the things that would sustain their life. What else? Frogs. I mean, if you could have a favorite plague, if you think, think about that, frogs, I think, are amazing. There are frogs everywhere. Frogs in the oven, frogs coming out of the bread basket, frogs in the kitchen. Now, think about that. They come to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh comes to Moses and says, let's get rid of the frogs. And Pharaoh says, you know, I want the frogs gone. And Moses says, great. When do you want the frogs gone? And Pharaoh says something amazing. He says, tomorrow. We just want to spend one more night with the frogs. You ever get up in the middle of the night and step on something gross? You ever feel something? I mean, we used to have a dog, and when the dog would jump up on the bed in the middle of the night, it got your attention. Could you imagine what it was like you're sleeping and all of a sudden, not just one little hop, a couple little hops in the entire night, you're lulled to sleep with ribbit, ribbit. One more night with the frogs. What's another plague that they had? Blood. The Nile River turns to blood. Do you know that the Egyptians worshipped the Nile River? That li- liver. Uh. We won't even go there. That's a whole other rabbit trail. They worshipped the Nile River. They called it the mother of life. And every single spring, during flood stage, they would take an innocent child and sacrifice it to the Nile River to assuage the wrath of the river. Now, in 2015 in America, we would never do anything like that, would we? We're much more surgical than that, to the tune of 55 million innocent lives since 1973. The plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea and the Jordan River, the Red Sea, the Jordan. Just amazing how God miraculously, providentially provided for the children of Israel. Gave them things no other nation in the world has had. The fall of Jericho, Joshua's long day. All of these would have been part and parcel of an education that the Hebrew children would have received in this school. Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 4. I want us to take a look at a passage. And if you underline in your Bibles, this is one of those verses that I would underline. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 32. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before thee, since the day that God created man upon the earth. In the days of creation, what day was man created in the six days of creation? Day six. All right. So the scope of the question is, I want you to think about every single day that's ever occurred since day six. And then I want you to think of all of the contents of that day, the history of the world since day six. And then I want you to ask from one side of the heaven to the other, stand outside on a moonless, cloudless night when the stars are just canopy of bright brilliance, like diamonds on black velvet. 
and ask from one side of the heaven to the other. And here's the question I want you to ask, the rhetorical question. Whether there hath been any such thing as this great thing is, or hath been heard like it. Was there ever a time in the history of the world where God spoke to a man, Moses, and then Moses spoke to the people from God? Ever in the history of the world before this? No, Moses was unique. Now, let me ask you a question, those of you who happen to stay awake in history class. Of what you know about American history, is there any other nation in the world that has a history like the United States? Our heritage. The men that we've been blessed with. Um, you know, we talk, we're in a cultural war right now with those who wish that America would change to be something else. And as I think about that, the question that I ask is, okay, if we're going to change to be something else, can you just name one country in the world anywhere that has given their people a First Amendment in the Bill of Rights? What's a, what, what's a First Amendment deal with? What's, what, what is it? All right, very first thing, religious liberty. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The right of the people to peaceably assemble, the right of newspapers to be able to publish free speech. I mean, think about that. Um, we have elitist leaders in Washington, D.C. and Lansing. I was in Lansing, uh, prepared to testify before uh, the House Committee on Common Core, and the person in front of us was testifying, and he said, the reason that we need Common Core is so that our students will become much more in alignment with the standards that they have in China. And the person right before me who testified said, so if I heard the previous guy correctly, our children should be educated like the communist Chinese. Is that what you're saying? And no other nation in the world has a First Amendment like we have it. So, let's just take a brief look at our history, God's providential plan for America. Now, if we were in a courtroom, it would be one thing in this courtroom if I were to call somebody like Bob Jones Sr., John R. Rice, Lee Robertson, any of those people, that, does America have a heritage? Of course they do. Do they have a godly heritage? Yes, they do. But let's go to the other side. Let's go to somebody who doesn't even like us, Thomas Paine a Revolutionary War writer, an infidel. He dies unsaved. He believes the Bible is, is a myth. He believes the virgin birth is a joke. That wants nothing to do with Christianity. But he's smart enough, he's honest enough with the facts to take a look at the history of the United States. And this is what he says in his pamphlet. Actually, the history of America. We're not the United States yet when he's writing it. He says in 1776, he says, the Reformation was preceded by the discovery of America. Sorry, I'll, I'll be okay. As if the Almighty graciously meant to open a sanctuary to the persecuted in future years when homes should afford neither friendship nor safety. He's saying, you look at world history, and isn't it amazing, 1492, Columbus Day, that's tomorrow, right? 1492, discovery of America, and then the Reformation, 1517 in Europe, as if when those people were persecuted, they couldn't stay in Germany, they couldn't stay in England, they couldn't stay in their home countries, they had to come to this country 
And when they do, it was available for them for religious liberty. Thomas Paine says that. So let's take a look at our history. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes said, a page of history is worth a pound of logic. What I'm amazed with when I listen to the secularists, and I debated an atheist uh, just about a year ago now, on whether America has a godly heritage or was the American government founded on Christian principles. And I'm amazed when you talk to them, they don't really research for themselves. They quote other people. They um, talk. They have their own little silo of scholars that they trust. And to ever look outside of the silo is something they're not going to do. Well, I would um, encourage them. Just take a look at first source documentation. Uh, in Washington, D.C., when I go to D.C., when I'm not taking a tour group there, I'll usually schedule myself for one extra day there. And during that extra day, I'll either take tours or um, try to learn something about the city, or I've gone to the U.S. Department of Education, and they have a library in the Department of Education. They have a small annex room about the size of like this half of the church. And in that annex room, they have textbooks from American classrooms as back as early as the 1700s. I've seen textbooks in there. And I've had the blessing of being able to go there and just research and look at early textbooks. This is from uh, the Department of Education library. And this is the, photo, the, the template of a history textbook. It says, A Brief History of the United States for Schools. And then I want you to look. This, this was entered by the Euro, U.S. Bureau of Education on May 8, 1913. It was entered into the library. Can you see what that official stamp of the United States government just about missed when it was stamped? Look what it says. What does that say? We have heard with our ears, O God. Our fathers have told us what work thou didst in their days and the times of old. For they got not the land in possession by their own sword, neither did their own arms save them, but thy right hand and thine arm in the light of thy countenance, because thou hadst favor unto them. That's right from the Koran, right? No. Now, could you imagine any history textbook in America today four schools with a Bible verse in it. And yet, here you have a, a U.S. textbook from 1913 that has a Bible verse in it. And when you study the preface of this, they asked a local pastor to write the textbook because they said he would be fair with the facts. That's incredible. Then you can see there was a stamp here. It was withdrawn from the library by the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. Probably taken out of circulation sometime during the 60s or 70s. But for probably 50 years, I think it would be safe to say, this textbook was used in American classrooms. And the whole premise of the textbook is we are not going to teach American history because we defeated the British because we were better, had a better army than them. We didn't. Had a better navy than them. We didn't. More skilled in battlefield than they were. No. We won because God fought for us is pretty much the premise of the American Revolution as taught in this textbook. God delivered us from them. Another U.S. history textbook has where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty taken right from 2 Corinthians. Jonathan Adams said, 
second president of the United States, he said, facts are stubborn things. Whatever may be our wishes or inclinations or the dictates of our passions, they cannot alter the state of facts or evidence. We're called to a higher standard, the truth. Um, When I was debating that atheist, I got discouraged afterwards, and I was talking to a friend of mine, a scholar that um, I relied on as we were preparing for the debate. I said they came to a point in the debate where they just made things up. There was no scholarship involved in what they were saying, and it appeared to give them the upper hand. And I said, I was discouraged with the fact that in this debate, they couldn't tell the truth. And he said, well, don't be discouraged, because you and I are called to a higher standard. We are called to speak the truth in love. They can, they can have lies in their arsenal. You and I can't. We're not allowed to make it up as we go along. We can't manufacture our own facts to make things fit the way we want them to. We have to look at the facts and say, okay, this is our history. This is our history in a very good way. This is our history in a way that I wish were different. But this is our history. This is what we've been entrusted with. This is the story we're supposed to be telling for the next generation. So let's start with, how did America educate its children? Let's start with the New England primer. From 1690 to about 1930, one of the primary textbooks used in American classrooms to teach children was this New England primer. I was speaking at a church one time, and there was a very sweet lady who came up to talk to me afterwards, and she said she went to a one-room school in the Thumb of Michigan, and she said in 1930 they were still using the New England primer in the classroom. So we know that, that it was available and that schools in Michigan used it. One part of the New England primer is that it had a catechism in it. Now the way you teach by catechism is the teacher asks the question, what is the chief end of man? And it's not an open discussion. The teacher isn't interested in each child's opinion. It's not like, what is the chief end of man? What do you think? What's the chief end of man? What do you think? The teacher says, what is the chief end of man? And all of the students answer in unison. And this is what the child in the American classroom would have recited back to their teacher. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What was the purpose of sending your kids to school according to that? Holy living. Godliness. The fact that once your child set foot in an American classroom, in an American school classroom, they should be closer to the Lord, be more godly, than if they would have stayed home and helped you on the farm that day. That child should have a closer walk with the Lord because of it. Now today, they still have catechisms in the secular schools. But the catechisms have things to do with very important things like global warming, recycling, relativism, tolerance, things like that. But there was a day the the catechism had something to do with spiritual things. Another part of the um, New England primer is the children would learn their ABCs and the teacher would go up and would write A on a chalkboard or a blackboard. And then every student would recite in unison or they would... They would uh, hand write in unison as they were doing it. A, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. B, heaven defined the Bible mind. C, Christ crucified for sinners died. Another part, the children learn poetic verses. How many of you remember something like this? Now I lay me down to take my sleep. Pray the Lord my soul to keep. 
If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. If you ever recited that as a little kid, somebody that you know went to school where there was a New England primer, an aunt, an uncle, a grandparent, and they remembered it, and they taught you that through oral history. G.K. Chesterton said, America is the only nation in the world founded on a creed. Margaret Thatcher says, no other nation has been built upon an idea. We're the only nation that swears its allegiance, not to a sovereign, but to an idea. So what is that idea? In 1774, a report to King George, the governor of Boston, made this statement. He said, if you ask an American who is his master, he will tell you he has none, nor any governor but Jesus Christ. Crown doesn't own me. Local government doesn't own me. I belong to Jesus Christ. That's who I answer to. Uh, This response became so prevalent during the time of the 1770s through the Revolutionary War that the colonial committees of correspondence and soldiers going off into battle would use the shout, no king but Jesus. We do not want an earthly sovereign. We would prefer to have King Jesus. Woodrow Wilson has already been president for four years. In 1916, he's running for re-election. And this is what he said in his standard stump speech. He said, America was born a Christian nation. Imagine any politician today saying something like that. America was born to exemplify that devotion to the tenets of righteousness which are derived from the revelations of Holy Scripture. So let's take a look at some of our earliest documents. The Mayflower Compact. Do you remember when the Mayflower Pilgrims came? They're blown way off course. They're supposed to be in Virginia with the Virginia Trading Company. As soon as they realize where they are up by um, Cape Cod, and they're too far north, they say, we have no right, no charter of government here. And before they even set foot on land off the Mayflower, excuse me, they came up with the Mayflower Compact. And the Mayflower Compact said this, in the name of Allah, amen, right? It came for the Muslim faith. No, for the advancement of the Christian faith. And you'll notice here that the Mayflower Compact, and they're always signing it, William Bradford, William Brewster, Miles Standish, when the early pilgrims came, they were covenant theologians. They believed that they were making a vertical covenant with God and a horizontal covenant with each other, saying, hold me accountable for these things. The contrast between North and South America is South America was settled by the Spanish who went there in search of gold. North America was settled by the pilgrims who went there in search of God. Briefly, and we'll conclude here. When they came, they realized that pastors would be unwilling to come, excuse me, from England to America, to the colonies. And so they needed to have a college. And they started out, it was called Curious Seafer, the City of Books. John Harvard went there. When he dies, he donates money in his books for the founding of Harvard College. Now, when you go to Harvard today in Massachusetts, on the gatepost, it explains why Harvard was founded. To maintain a literate clergy. Can I ask you a question? Has Harvard strayed at all from its founding documents? All right, just a little bit. And... Let's turn back to our passage in 1 Samuel chapter 14. Israel's at a low ebb in life. Things are not going well for them. 
And Jonathan says, you know what, looking at our history, I believe God's going to help us. He's helped us in the past. He can help us today. The God who helped us then is the same God who can help us now. In the New Testament, we have that wonderful verse, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in 1 Samuel chapter 14, Jonathan says, let's go fight the Philistines. Let's take it to them. And so in verse 14, that first slaughter with Jonathan and his armor burn made was about 20 men within, as it were, a half acre of land, which a yoke of oxen might plow. Just about, you know, the size of the entire property from corner to corner here. They fight the Philistines, a half acre of land. They fight, they win, they defeat the Philistines in a small way, but the response is huge. Look what happens in verse 21. Moreover, the Hebrews that were with the Philistines before that time, which went up with them into the camp from the country round about, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. The compromisers, those who said, you know what, I'm wearing this Philistine coat and I'm really not supposed to be a Philistine. I'm a Hebrew by faith. They take the Philistine coat off and they come back and they fight with the Hebrews because they were encouraged by what Jonathan did. Then verse 22, Likewise also the men of Israel which had hid themselves in the Mount of Ephraim. When they heard that the Philistines fled, even they followed hard after them in the battle. The cowards came back. Those who were in hiding, those who were afraid to show themselves in their true colors, they came back. And then look what happens in verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed over into Beth Haven. Jonathan said, I believe God's going to help us. I believe God has the capability of helping us. There is no day in American history that is so dark that God cannot help us. There is no day that you and I will face that God isn't already there. And if we just call unto him, He'll answer us, Jeremiah 33 says, and show us great and mighty things which we know not. And so our response is, as believers, as the redeemed, is we come today, no matter what the day looks like, and just say, you know what? I believe God's going to help us. Let's pray together today. Father, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you for your goodness to us. Help us, Lord, to have that determination, that courage of a Jonathan, to stand up and say that it is right for us to stand up for you and for your goodness and for your blessings upon this nation and the nation of Israel that you've blessed as well. Pray that you would continue to encourage us and bless in the morning service. May our hearts be tender as we turn towards you and we would thank you for this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Elwood.